If you're watching live, good morning. If you're listening throughout the week, thank you for making us part of your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have so enjoyed this sermon series on Revelation. My own personal study, listening to Mel, listening to David last week, as we see these beautiful pictures in an art gallery of what you are doing in the course of history and in the future. And God, today as we look at something that we know is in the future, it is going to be that judgment day. God, I ask that you would open our eyes that we might see you more clearly, open our ears that we might hear you more fully, open our minds and our hands that we might understand you and respond in a way that brings you glory. So God, may my words fall down so that your words would be lifted up. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Last summer, I had the unfortunate experience of being assaulted. The next 24 hours were an absolute blur. I went and talked to a police officer and then there was the inevitable follow-up. I went to the hospital to make sure everything was okay and my text messages were blowing up as people wanted to hear the story. Dave, what happened? In the midst of everything that took place, I decided I should probably get some professional advice. One of my soccer buddies is a lawyer, so I sent him a text and I said, Hey Bruce, uh, I got assaulted the other day, just wanted to know if you could spend some time talking with me about it. And he said, Yep, call me anytime after four o'clock. So after we started exchanging a couple pleasantries, he stopped and he said, Okay Dave, tell me what happened. And I said, Well Bruce, last night at soccer, and he said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. You got assaulted at a soccer game and he just started laughing. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I should be offended here or what. And he stopped and he said, Dave, you don't know what type of lawyer I am, do you? And I said, Bruce, to be fair, I don't. I just needed some legal advice as to what to do. And he goes, Dave, I'm a personal injury lawyer. And right now I feel like a kid in a candy store. You got assaulted in front of at least 20 to 30 witnesses? Just give it to me. So then I started to describe what took place. The night before, at a soccer game, I had handed a player a yellow card for a dangerous tackle. That means he uh, hurt somebody, caused minor injury, and he needed to have what's called a caution. About five to 10 minute, minutes later, that exact same player tripped somebody, wasn't malicious, wasn't evil in any way, but uh, when he stood up after I blew the whistle, he clapped for me and gave me some verbal encouragement, which means he got a second yellow card. And if you're not familiar with soccer, two yellow cards, and you get tossed from the game. No problem, happens quite regularly. So I watch him walk over to the bench, and I think, okay, I can reset the ball. But apparently, from what I was told, once he got to the sidelines, he looked at me, and he was going to give me some more um, introduction to sign language, and he ran back, noticing that I wasn't looking, and he clocked me in the side of the head as hard as he could. An absolute sucker punch. What was I supposed to do? My friend Bruce went into full legal mode and he said, how injured are you? Have you gone to a doctor? Do you have benefits at the church? Do you, are you able to get the medical care that you need? How do you feel right now? Are you dizzy? Are you gonna make, miss any time from work? And on and on he asked these questions. I decided, you know what? I'm not gonna sue the guy, but I am going to press charges for physical assault because who knows what else he's done and those sorts of actions just simply cannot take place. This happened 13 months ago. This past winter, one of my other soccer buddies said to me, hey Dave, what's ever happened with that assault charge? And I said, uh, you know what, I haven't heard peep. I don't know what's taking place. I don't know when the court date's happening. And he goes, just a heads up, I'm a criminal defense attorney 
and it's going to be awful. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? What's going to happen? And he said, you're going to take the stand. And as a criminal defense attorney, I'm going to do everything I can to make you look completely incompetent. I'm going to try to fluster you. I'm going to try to make you look bad. I'm going to ask if you had a fight with your wife. I'm going to ask if you had any alcohol that day. I'm going to ask if you came to the field drunk. I'm going to ask if you lost control of the game. On and on it goes. That court date still hasn't been set yet. I don't know when it's going to take place. But it gets me thinking, what is the judge going to do when I stand there? What kind of criminal defense attorney is that person who punched me going to have? Is the judge going to be a little bit leaning towards my side or a little bit leaning towards his side? Maybe he doesn't even like referees. Maybe his grandson got kicked out of a hockey game the last week. Maybe he finds out I'm a Christian. Maybe he finds out I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh man, I'm going to stick up for this guy. Maybe you've been in court. Maybe you've watched legal dramas or watched, uh, listened to a, uh, something on DVD or tape. But you always think to yourself, how do we know if this judge is going to be completely impartial? What would it be like to have a perfect holy and righteous judge, and we don't have to worry about how he's going to call the case. Or we don't have to be concerned if it's right or good, who's not bedazzled by some fancy lawyer in a really nice suit who has a perfectly golden tongue. Today, we're going to look at just such a judge, one who is holy, who is perfect, and who is absolutely just. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Revelation chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible with you, open your laptop or a phone or tablet, and you can download a Bible at bible.com app. We've spent the last couple of months working through the book of Revelation and seeing this battle between good and evil unfold. Our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a lion, trying to devour us. We've seen pictures and images of what this beast is trying to do and how he's trying to trap Christians and lead people who don't follow Jesus and those who do astray. Today, in Revelation chapter 20, that battle is going to come to an end. Today is judgment day. Today we are going to see a picture of a judge who is absolutely perfect, absolutely holy, absolutely just. He will not be wowed by some fancy lawyers. In fact, there won't even be any lawyers on the scene. He is the judge, he is the jury, and he will make the ultimate decision. If you enjoy taking notes, our passage today begins with a thousand-year preview. This is Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that... He must be set free for a short time. This past week, my oldest son saw a picture of a ghost. And we're not talking Casper the Friendly Ghost. We're not talking something in some Mario game on Nintendo. He showed me the picture, and I could see how it was a little bit disturbing. And so my wife and I prayed for our little guy, but I could tell he was still whimpering. He wanted some mummy and daddy time. And so I thought, why not tell him a story from Revelation? I said, Beckham, can I tell you what daddy's going to be preaching on this Sunday? And in that six-year-old kind of whimpering voice, he said, sure, I, I guess so. 
And so I started paraphrasing Revelation 20. I said, Beckham, we talk about how God is so strong and so powerful and how he's so great. Do you know what happens in Revelation 20? He takes Satan and he wraps him up in a chain and he throws him in prison. In fact, it's not even God himself who does it. God sends an angel to do it. And my son goes, whoa. And I said, Beckham, do you know how long Satan is going to be in prison for? And Beckham goes, I don't know. And I said, 1,000 years. Whoa. And Beckham, do you know what happens after those 1,000 years are up? And he goes, what? I said, he's going to get all of the people who hate Christians and they're going to march towards a great city. What do you think is going to happen next? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, there isn't a big battle, Beckham. God, who is frustrated and annoyed and bothered by Satan, goes, enough, and sends fire down from heaven and destroys all of them. And Beckham looks at me and he says, Daddy, that's amazing. And I said, Beckham, if God can do that to Satan, what do you think he can do to that little picture of a ghost that scared you? And he goes, Daddy, I'm not scared anymore. Friends, we think this is going to be an epic showdown. We're expecting it to be like in books or the end of a movie where there's this epic boss fight, this final battle that takes place. But that's not the scene at all. We'll see in the second half of verse nine, which is the middle section of our passage today, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's it. That's the battle. If you're, it's like you swatting an annoying mosquito. It's an annoyance and then it's done. If God can send his butler to bind up Satan and throw him into prison, what can God do himself when he decides the time is enough? As you listen to the first three verses, and now hear the next three verses, four to six, listen to see if you can pick out a common word or phrase that's being spoken. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have been a part of the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Did you hear it? Twice in the first three verses, three times in the next three verses, a thousand years. For 1,000 years, God is going to give us a preview of what is to come. For 1,000 years, Christians will get the slightest glimpse of what heaven is like. For 1,000 years, an unbelieving world will be shown a better way to live. Movie previews have almost become an event. It used to be you'd get your 30-second clip on TV, and then you'd go to the movie theater. And for me, one of the best parts was watching those first five previews. What movie am I going to see next after this one? But now, with the advent of Facebook and YouTube, movie previews are almost an event. 
People will watch them, wait for them, analyze them. You try to find out who your favorite superhero is going to fight. You find out who your favorite actor is. is, Are they able to solve the mystery in front of them? You find out if 35 years after the original Top Gun comes out, is episode two going to be good? I think it will. The previews give you a taste of what is to come. Our federal government is on the left side of the political spectrum. Our provincial government on the right side of the political spectrum. Wherever you sit on the political spectrum, you're thinking there's got to be something better than this. And there will. When Jesus Christ comes back, as he sits on that throne and shows us this is what human flourishing can look like, it is going to be absolutely amazing. And if you grew up in church, you probably know where I'm going next. If you're brand new to church, you're in for a little bit of a surprise. For the next few minutes, I want to talk to you about the three main views that the history of Christendom has had over these 1,000 years. It's not going to be an academic exercise, but rather an overview of what people who believe Jesus comes before the millennium, the amillennium, or the postmillennium, and what that looks like. So, if you enjoy taking notes, the first one is premillennial. At its most basic, premillennialists believe Jesus will return for a 1,000-year reign. It's going to look something like this. Satan is bound up, thrown into prison, and Jesus will reign on earth for a literal 1,000 years, during which time there will be unprecedented social justice, international peace, and physical well-being. During this time, there will be incredible blessings on earth— Not everybody will be followers of Jesus, but they'll get to see what Christianity looks like. They'll get to see a glimpse, a preview of what heaven will be like, and people will come to faith in droves because Jesus Christ is sitting on that throne. Over the course of history, Irenaeus is one of the biggest supporters of this movement, and of the three options, it is the most popular in North America. If we're talking about zeal for God's return, Premillennial is the one for you. The second view is postmillennial, where premillennialists believe that Jesus returns at the beginning of the millennium. The one uh, postmillennialists believe Jesus will return at the end of a 1,000-year golden age. So same sort of idea. Satan will be bound up, thrown into heaven, but Jesus won't return right away. Instead, there will be 1,000 years of human prosperity. The world will flourish, Christianity will thrive around the world, and the people around us will see there is a much greater way to live. Perhaps one of the most encouraging attributes of those who fall into the post-millennial belief is the incredible power and faith they have in the Holy Spirit. Through preaching and a deep commitment to Jesus Christ, the world is radically transformed by those who follow him. Arguably the greatest thinker the United States has ever developed, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, is probably the most well-known supporter of this belief. After 1,000 years, then Jesus will return. If we're talking about the confidence of the gospel, this is the one for you. Finally, we have amillennialists. Unlike the other two who believe in a literal 1,000-year period, amillennialists believe Jesus is currently reigning during a symbolic 1,000 years. They argue that Satan has already been bound up and already been thrown in prison, not going to happen in the future. 
but it's already taken place when Jesus died, was buried, and then was resurrected. If you're looking around and thinking to yourself, this is the golden age with a worldwide pandemic, with all the racism that's happening south of the border, this is the best it's going to get? An amillennialist would look at you and say, well, it's kind of like a mob boss who's been caught into prison, who can still have his fingers and be involved in everything that's taking place in the world around us. Some of the history's greatest thinkers actually are part of this belief. They, um, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin are all amillennialists. In fact, if you're thinking, Dave, which one has been around the longest? It's this one. Since the second century, people have believed this is what's going to take place. But what's so interesting to me in that all of these three views, it's not conservative versus liberal. It's not, I believe in the inspiration of scripture and you don't. It's not mainline church, evangelical church, or charismatic church. (coughs) Pardon me. They're godly students of scripture on all three sides of this belief. I really like what a pastor down in Tennessee by the name of Scotty Smith says, no amillennialist is going to pout if the postmillennialist is right. No postmillennialist is going to have his feelings hurt if amillennialism proves to be more consistent with the unfolding of the history of redemption. Premillennialists are not going to high-five one another for a thousand years in the face of dejected postmills and amills should their view of these matters be realized in history. The good news is that all Christians are going to enjoy fully everything won for us by our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what our position on the millennium is. It can be fun to discuss these three different views of the thousand years. But let's shift gears for a bit and talk about what is it that we as Christians, wherever we land on that spectrum, can truly agree on. It's three things. Satan either has been or will be bound. There will be a period of human flourishing and Jesus Christ is king. Satan has or will be bound, human flourishing and Jesus Christ is king. About four years ago, I was still at my previous church uh, out west of the city in a small rural community. And my wife and I knew that it was time to move on. A couple churches had expressed interest in us and both of us having been born and raised in Edmonton were really wanting to get back into the city. And the further we interacted with churches, the more they would start sending us theological questions and surveys to start filling out. One of those questions on every survey was to be expected. Dave, what is your view of the end times? Do you believe in a premillennialum, an amillennial, or a postmillennial? And I would look at them And I would say the same thing every time. Jesus is king. He's coming back. And it's going to be awesome. In that, we can all agree. Friends, do you understand the value of this 1,000-year preview? Whatever your view is, Jesus is showing up and going to show us that there's a significantly better way. There is a political system that works, Jesus' system, and that leads us to our big idea. And here it is. God judges the world to bring healing to the world. This 1,000 years is not heaven. There will be hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who still don't believe in Jesus. 
but life transformation is absolutely going to take place. And after that 1,000 years is over, Satan will be released one last time. That leads us to the second part of our message, the death of Satan. This is verses 7 to 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camps of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. One of the great things about the Bible is how easy and accessible the big ideas are for everybody to understand. Jesus died for you and anyone who believes in him will receive eternal life. This is a big idea. It's huge. It's life transformational. And my preschooler could tell you that. But if you peel back that layer, there's so much more that is taking place. We can talk about the death and what it means, that atoning work that Jesus done. We can talk about the Holy Spirit working in our lives for gospel transformation. We can talk about what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ and how that impacts us every day of our lives. In the same way, verses 7 to 10 are easy to understand. We read these four verses and we say, yes. Satan is killed. But let me peel back the layer a little bit and show you what's taking place because it is absolutely incredible. All the way back in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, God promised a man named Abraham that he was going to give him a land of his own and bless him so that he might be a blessing to the entire world. It took nearly over 400 years for that promise to be realized. But eventually, Israel settled in the promised land and great cities like Jerusalem were built and had kings like King David and King Solomon. And there was a period of great human flourishing. However, instead of this prosperity leading to worship, the opposite happened. People started turning away from God. Look at how rich we are. Look at everything we have. Look at the world around us. What do we need God for anymore? And so God sent prophet after prophet, bringing the word of God to the people and helping them realize, please turn back, come back to God. You can't live without him. You need to know who he is. You need to worship him. But they didn't listen. So it was time for God to take drastic measures. One of the superpowers at that time was the empire of Babylon. And through God working in back channels and doing what only God can do, this supernatural force of Babylon marched towards Jerusalem and took captive the Israelites. If we were to put this into a chart, it might look something like this. In old Jerusalem, there's human flourishing. There's a supernatural force that God allows to take place and people gathered in the nation of Israel, uh, pardon me, the city of Jerusalem and are made captive to their enemies. Now watch this because I think it's absolutely incredible and why I love being a preacher. In the future Jerusalem, 
there will be a period of incredible human flourishing, even better than in ancient Israel under King David and King Solomon. And it will last for a thousand years. And then Satan will be released from prison and he will gather everybody who follows him and who hates Jesus towards this city of Jerusalem where all Christians are gathered. Up to this point, the chart looks absolutely the same. But it's radically different because this period of human flourishing helps people fall in love with Jesus. The supernatural force is significantly worse than Babylon and the people who are gathered aren't afraid of what's going to happen, but know that they are going to win in the end. And instead of being captive to enemies, it is the destruction of their enemies. It is God from heaven saying, enough! And half a verse, fire falls down from heaven and the enemies are destroyed. I don't have a slide for this, so I'll repeat it twice. Satan is part of three epic movements in human history. In the garden with Adam and Eve, Satan is cursed. At the cross, Satan is defeated. And on judgment day, Satan is destroyed. In the garden of Eden, he is cursed. On the cross, he is defeated. And in the future, he is destroyed, which once again brings us back to our big idea. In Satan's death, God is showing us how judging the world brings healing to the world. Satan is the deceiver. And once the deceiver gets out of the picture, our eyes, our hearts, our minds, all of who we are can be focused on Jesus Christ, our great and glorious King. Which leads us to the final part. After the death of Satan, God's enemies are destroyed. This is verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Nearly 50 times in the book of Revelation, we read the word throne more than two times per chapter on average. Imagine being in that scene. Imagine looking into the sky and the throne of God coming down and everything around you washing away like a time lapse, moving things out of the picture. No more earth and sky and sea, no more animals on the land and birds in the sky. Nothing is left but a sea of people. Not just hundreds of millions, billions of people over the course of history. You find yourself looking at people as far as the eye can see. Every man, woman, and child on level ground before the throne. Kings and queens standing beside servants and slaves. The tech giants from Silicon Valley standing right beside the people of ancient Egypt. Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Jews, 
people of every belief system standing before the throne. And suddenly books are opened. Notice not one book, but books, plural. Literally billions of books. Turns out it's not just famous people who have biographies written about them, but every single one of us. These books record every thought, every action, every deed that me and you have ever committed. Every person will be judged according to what they have done and is recorded in these books. This is not about a scale of do your good deeds outweigh your bad. This is a judgment of allegiance. Do you follow the lamb? Or do you follow the dragon? In a letter written to the people of Rome, the author says this, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. All of us will stand before God. But it is our choice. Will we stand there on our own merits and what we've done with our lives? Or will we stand there on the merit of Jesus Christ? A perfect and holy sacrificial lamb who stands on our behalf, his life for ours. For everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, their names will be written in the book of life and spend eternity in his glorious presence. If anyone's name is not found in the book of life they are thrown into a lake of fire. To quote the commentator Gregory Beale, those who die in their sins do not pass into nothingness and forgetfulness. There is a time beyond death, a time for the damned as well. And it is because there is such a thing as time beyond that hell is so terrible. It's easy to see why this makes people nervous. Even Christians, if we're being really honest with ourselves. This isn't a reality show that we watch from the comfort of our living rooms. Oh, is that person going to get to stay on the TV show for another week? We are talking about eternity. An eternity in a flaming, fiery pit of hell. Or eternity with the great and glorious risen Lord in Jesus Christ. So let's go back to our main theme for today. God judges the world to bring healing to the world. In the opening section, God gives us this 1,000 year preview of what is to come. By judging Satan, by throwing him in prison, he gives us a glimpse, a taste, just a preview of what is to come. In that millennium, however it plays out, sin and death are still present, but human justice and flourishing will be there like never before. The judgment brings healing. In the middle section, Satan is defeated. Satan can Uh, has many names throughout scripture. He is the accuser. He is the devil. He is the deceiver. In his death and destruction, when he is thrown into that lake of fire, his power is destroyed. The final judgment is taking place and we are closer to being healed. And finally, in this closing section, all of God's enemies are destroyed. Everyone who stands against him, destroyed. All who don't believe in him, destroyed. Judged is Satan who has accused God's people. Judged are the people who stand against God and judged is the final enemy, death and Hades itself, and through this judgment, healing takes place. 
because now nobody stands against him. Now it is the great and awesome God who we worship in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the billions of followers throughout the course of history who believe in Jesus Christ, their King. Today's application, today's sermon has no application. But the implication is huge. We have confidence in Christ that he has saved us from sin. We have confidence in Christ that he will destroy the devil. We have confidence in Christ that our enemies are defeated. Confidence in Christ that he is the perfect, holy, just, and righteous judge. We have confidence in Christ that we are sons and daughters of a great and glorious king. Judge, uh, confidence in Christ that we who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Confidence in Christ that he is preparing a place for us. We have confidence in Christ that the God who judges the world brings healing to the world. And the next two weeks are going to be absolutely amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us when we don't have the confidence in you that we need. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Remind us regularly that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remind us regularly that you win. Remind us regularly that your judgment is not a bad thing, but that your judgment is what brings healing. And in all of this, help us to have confidence in you as your sons and daughters, as men and women and children who follow you and to stay faithful until the end. Give us strength, fill us with your spirit and help us to go out and tell the world how great you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.